Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The thunderbolt from the United States Supreme Court overruling Roe v. Wade worked immediate and dramatic changes to the national legal and political landscapes. And in the wake of the decision, some red states are moving to enact ever more draconian restrictions, including provisions aimed at preventing their pregnant residents from seeking abortion services in other states. Many blue states and cities have taken these developments as a call to action. They are working to pass constitutional amendments or statewide laws to affirm their protection of abortion rights, and they are gearing up, legally and politically, for fights involving women who travel to procure reproductive health care that their own states deny them. At the epicenter of these battles are pro-choice state attorneys general, who are the top legal officers in their states. Several have vowed publicly to vigorously defend abortion rights, in the courts, at the ballot box, and in the public square. In today's special episode of Talking Feds, we convene a roundtable of three such attorneys general who oppose the Dobbs decision and are working to mitigate its effects on women in their states. They may be generals, but they are very much on the front lines of the new post-Dobbs abortion wars. We welcome first. Aaron Ford, he's been Nevada's Attorney General since 2019, and he was the first African-American to hold statewide constitutional office in Nevada. As AG, he's prioritized consumer protection, opioids, and human trafficking, among other priorities. He previously served as both the majority and minority leader in the Nevada State Legislature, which tells you, I think, something about the fluid politics and purple status of Nevada. And before that, worked in private practice where he represented businesses, municipalities, and individuals. And before that, as a public school math teacher. Welcome to Talking Feds, General Ford, or if it's okay, Aaron. Thanks, Harry. Happy to be here. Dana Nessel. General Nessel was sworn in as Michigan's Attorney General in 2019. She has prioritized consumer and environmental protection and prescription drug addiction. General Nessel created a Conviction Integrity Unit to investigate convicts' claims of innocence. She began her legal career as an assistant prosecutor in the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. She then opened her own legal firm where she became known as a staunch advocate for constitutional and civil rights. She's also recognized as one of the premier litigators of LBGTQ issues in Michigan and has received numerous awards for her civil rights initiatives, including the Champion of Justice Award from the Michigan Bar Association. Thank you very much for joining this special episode of Talking Feds. Dana? Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. And General Phil Weiser, the Attorney General for Colorado since 2019. He's worked to tackle the opioid crisis there, reform the Colorado criminal justice system, and protect the natural environment. Before running for office, General Weiser was the Hatfield Professor of Law and Dean of the University of Colorado Law School. He also served in the Obama administration as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General and Senior Advisor for Technology and Innovation. 
and in the Clinton administration as senior counsel to the assistant attorney general for the antitrust division. He began his law career as a law clerk to Justice Byron R. White and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and also to Colorado legend Judge David Abell at the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver. I'm very happy to call him my good friend for some 25 or more years, but who's counting? Welcome to Talking Feds, Phil. Great to be with you, Harry. Okay, let's start with a practical question. What is the first action any of you took in reaction to the Dobbs case? And how much of your work today, kind of hour by hour, is connected to abortion and the Supreme Court decision in one way or another? I'm happy to go first. Every single day, we are talking about, we are working on this question about reproductive rights. We were prepared for this in Colorado. We actually passed a law, the Reproductive Health Equity Act, which codified Roe versus Wade by statute. Was that in the wake of the leaked draft? No, before then. Even before. Basically, yeah. the oral argument this fall was pretty clear that Roe versus Wade was on the ropes, and we didn't want to wait until the case was overturned to take action. We took action in advance, and that law is important because it gives an affirmative right to abortion services in Colorado. What we also had to make clear after the opinion is anyone who comes to Colorado, a patient, is going to have the opportunity to get abortion care here in Colorado. We're not going to allow doctors to be criminalized for performing abortions, and we're going to defend the rights of patients to travel across state lines. The questions that have come up have been considerable. Our office, like a number of state AGs, has given a know-your-rights type document or advisory to the public. And we're literally cataloging all the legal questions that are coming up that we're going to have to address in the months and years ahead. Yeah, and similarly, uh, first off, Harry, again, thanks for having me on. Uh, Good to be with my friend Phil and Dana. We worked hand-in-hand together on so many important topics, and this one is obviously uh, quite important as well. We also started well before the leaked decision came out, and by that I mean 1990. In our state, we had codified by referendum into our statutes here, Roe v. Wade, And that law will stay on the books until the people vote against it. This is not a simple law that can be overturned by a normal sitting legislature. So we have abortion protected up to 24 weeks in our state and longer if a doctor requires it. And so the first thing that we did once we saw the league come out was to marshal all of our uh, troops internally uh, to talk about how we would warn against complacency in our state. Because we didn't want people thinking that because we have 24 weeks codified into our statutes that we were 100% safe. Because there are things that people can do in this state, legislatures, to the extent they are overtaken by those who are anti-choice, who could work around the edges to limit it, whether it's uh, notification issues, whether it's waiting periods or, or other forms of restrictions. What's the status today of the Nevada legislature? Democrats control both houses of our legislature and our governor's democratic as well. So right now, and you know, we're obviously in the middle of an election and we anticipate that remaining the same. Uh, but as you said earlier, I was minority leader before I was majority leader. I was minority leader in 2014, having been in the majority for two years before that. And then two years later, I was the majority leader. So we've seen Republicans being able to take control of our legislature in recent history. And, and so, you know, with our concern around that issue, we wanted to educate individuals about that, warn against complacency, and to uh, stress the importance of voting. So, so that's what we did in the immediate aftermath, not of the decision itself, but of the leaked opinion, which we viewed as prefacing what was going to be. Dana, you're in a not unique but unusual position in Michigan. You're one of the states 
that had on the books these trigger laws as a result of which the Dobbs decision brought back into, I believe, automatic effect a 1931 law. So you're the attorney general. This law is now on the books. You might have thought perhaps you've even taken heat from people suggesting, look, it's a law on the books. You're attorney general. You don't get to pick and choose. Nevertheless, along with the governor, you immediately declared you wouldn't enforce that law. You went to state court to argue that it violates the state constitution. How have you kind of thought of your responsibility as attorney general, given the presence of a draconian law that just roared back to life? So a few things in regard to that. Firstly, I ran on this issue. I actually did a commercial where I talked about the fact that with Kavanaugh being confirmed in 2018, as all three of us were running for our first terms in office, we knew that it was very likely that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. And I knew that this 1931 law would spring back into effect. So I presented myself to the voters as someone who would refuse to prosecute a law that, in my opinion, would compromise the health and safety of the 2.2 million women of reproductive age in my state that call Michigan home. So the voters were well aware of that when I ran and they elected me anyway. But another thing I will say is that as prosecutors, for all of us, we enjoy prosecutorial discretion. And what that means is we enforce the laws that we believe best protect the residents of our state. And we don't focus on the laws that don't accomplish that. So, for instance, we have a litany of laws on the books that are never enforced, such as adultery is a felony in the state of Michigan. I don't know a single prosecutor in the state that investigates and prosecutes adultery cases. But in addition to that, if you just look at the differences between myself and my predecessors, my Republican predecessors never prosecuted environmental laws. And I do. My predecessors never prosecuted hate crimes under our Ethnic Intimidation Act. And I do. They never prosecuted payroll fraud cases, and I do. So one could suggest that, you know, they were remiss in their duties as attorneys general for failing to pursue those types of cases. But ultimately, you know, we only have so much in the way of resources, right? And so my predecessors, they prosecuted a whole lot of marijuana cases, and I took the money that they were spending on marijuana cases, and I diverted it into prosecuting sexual assault cases from clergy abuse investigation and our Boy Scouts of America investigation. So it's all a matter of priorities as well. And I think for all three of us, we made it clear to the public what our priorities were when we ran for office. And the voters of our state elected us with that knowledge, with that understanding. I will say, let me just correct one thing you said. Our 1931 law, it technically is not in effect right now based on some of the cases that you mentioned, there is a preliminary injunction in place. Now, that could be lifted at any time, and the Republican legislature is arguing that it should be lifted. But as of right now, for this moment, abortion rights remain in effect. But of course, that's subject to change at any time, predicated on the decision of the courts. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I just want to push on this prosecutorial enforcement and priorities a bit. So I was on the federal side, but had the same kind of question. But let me suggest that this is more than a resource question for all three of you. There are a lot of state offices or federal offices which decide to do one in a blue moon because it's on the books or maybe try to take it off 
But I think you are creating priorities, not simply based on resources, but based on your sense of the constitutional needs and the risks and challenges to women in your state. That does seem to me that you're taking on yourself as an attorney general, a pretty vigorous role of choice of rights and shaping of rights for the citizens of your state. Is that fair? Well, let me say this in response. And I think one of the difficulties that we have in our state is, you know, we are so badly gerrymandered. Now, that fortunately is not going to be the case, I hope, following the 2022 elections, because we did pass a voter initiative in 2018 that created a bipartisan redistricting commission. But right now, we have a legislature that does not in any way, shape, or form reflect the values of the people of our state. So well over two-thirds of Michigan residents would like to see row-based laws that involve rights to reproductive freedom on the books in our, in our state. We simply can't have that because we have a majority of Republicans in both the House and the Senate because of our, our terrible gerrymandering. I think that'll change. And we also have a ballot initiative that will be on the ballot in November where voters can directly have a say as to whether or not they want to have reproductive freedom in our state. And so they'll vote on that. And I'm hopeful that Roe will be codified into our constitution as a result. But it's hard for me to say that this is a fair process when you have this law on the books that is very dangerous to my state residents. And the legislature is not at all reflective of what the people of my state want to see. And I can add a little bit to that. In a sense, it really will be subject to a political check. You're running for re-election and your opponent says he won't support any exceptions to an abortion ban. He'll prosecute women and their doctors. So the issue is pretty cleanly raised. So one thing Dana mentioned, I think it comes into play with all three of you. How does it work and how much of your battle has to do with local prosecutors. So if there are pockets within the state, maybe because within their immediate jurisdictions, they are anti-choice and who say, I want to enforce this state law. Is it possible to bring them to heel? And how does that relationship generally work? Maybe it varies very much state by state. Let me start with Colorado under the Reproductive Health Equity Act. That law stated that access to reproductive health care is a matter of statewide concern. And any effort by local governments, which could be prosecutors, it could be a county commission that seeks to curtail access to abortion services, violates state law. I've said I'm committed to defending that law, to enforcing that law, and if necessary, suing local governments who might seek to bar access to this protected right is something I'm willing to do. This is fundamental. The consequences of curtailing access to reproductive health care are painful. Dana said at the time, women will die because of the Dobbs decision. We're seeing and hearing about cases that are heartbreaking, uh, not just to the health of a mother, but also mental health and the prospect of, we heard the case about the 10-year-old girl being forced to bear a child after being raped. That's something that we're not going to let happen in Colorado, and we're not going to let any local government seek to prevent access to abortion care. Sounds strong, but what are the lines of authority? So you have recalcitrant local prosecutors. Do you pick up the phone and try to jawbone them? Or or it sounds like Phil brings them to court. 
what are your options? Let me ask you about that, Aaron. Yeah, so similar to Phil's relationship with his district attorneys, I'm certain we have a comparable statutory relationship. We have supervisory authority over our district attorneys. Now, to be sure, they have independent investigatory authority and they have their primary jurisdiction in certain arenas and our statutes delineate how I can get engaged and how I can get involved. That said, uh, we also have individuals who I suspect will endeavor to be creative. Uh, We don't have the criminalization of abortion in our state. That was one of the things that we took off the books last last session. I think it was, it may have been two sessions ago. But again, with the convocation of Roe v. Wade into our statutes, you know, it's a protected right, uh, at least the access to it after 24 weeks. But we have people who are running uh, for this office, running against me, who she's alluded to the fact that she would like to enhance penalties against women who seek abortions. Yeah. Right. How she would do that, you know, remains to be seen. But the fact is she wants to prosecuted in prison women who seek abortions. Uh, and so we, we would have to be vigilant at the electoral side of things. Uh, obviously, again, we, we've tried to warn against complacency to ensure folks know the importance of voting in this election, but also ensure that if there are others in our jurisdictions of 17 counties that think comparably, uh, you know, my office would be willing to step in and to act and utilize statutory authority that we have from a supervisory position, uh, but also just simply suing a municipality if I have to. And we've had frequent battles, if you will, in our state, and you, we've been able to resolve those, generally speaking, by, as you've indicated, a phone call. And COVID was, you know, presented the best example to date, frankly, of how we would have to address a potential conflicts in, in jurisdiction. But that would be the approaches that we would have to take under our statutes. Let me just quickly jump in. Prosecutors in Colorado have no authority to bring any case. The only actor who could potentially act problematically would be a local governmental unit, county commission or city council, who might try to pass some type of, I don't know, zoning ordinance saying no one can provide abortion services. That's where our oversight would come in. Dana, do you have the power to make a local prosecutor stand down? Is it unclear? How does it work? So technically speaking, we do have a statute on the books that talks about the supervisory authority of the AG over the county prosecutors. That's never really been tested in court. My position really has been this. I don't think that I have the right to tell county prosecutors what they should and should not charge. Now, in this case, of course, we have uh, an injunction that's been issued by a court of law. So even if they don't have to listen to me, they certainly do have to listen to the court who has stopped the ability to pursue these types of cases, at least for right now. But my concern is this. There are a lot of folks out there that want me to try to really exert my authority as attorney general over these prosecutors. And I'm reluctant to do that. And let me say why. We have, especially in our most populous counties, it's no surprise that those areas, we have Democratic prosecutors who don't want to pursue charges against women and their doctors for what has been a protected constitutional act for 50 years in this country. And I'm reluctant to have a court rule for the first time. Yes, the AG can say very specifically what a county prosecutor can or cannot charge, because you know what? I might be succeeded by a Republican who wants to now tell all those Democratic county prosecutors, for instance, You're not allowed to charge a police officer who used excessive force. I don't like your charge. I'm going to quash it. And, you know, these are duly elected prosecutors. So it concerns me to say, I'm going to decide as AG what you can and can't charge if it is a legal and valid charge. And that's why we have to have the courts indicate that this is not constitutional, or we have to have the voters 
pass our referendum to say that it's a constitutionally protected act here under our Michigan constitution, because I, I just have grave concerns about that. And I also don't want to put myself in a situation where all of a sudden now I'm getting sued as the state AG for every random act that any of our 83 county prosecutors engages in, when realistically, I don't have control over the work that they do in their office. I can only control my staff and my employees and not what the staff of all 83 county prosecutors do. So that's been my position. I just want to make sure that legally, no prosecutor, including the state AG, has the ability to bring charges as it pertains to abortion or or birth control or anything involving reproductive rights or access. That's a really great point. I mean, I think all three of you, though, I'm sure the legal structure and lines of authority vary. But the sort of delicate questions, especially in states that are somewhat fluid electorally, you have to think really carefully about the future. Let me ask you this. All three of you signed this joint statement from a coalition of national attorneys general reaffirming commitment to abortion rights. There were 22 AGs, I think, who signed it, and you probably work with them You guys all have the benefit of a Democratic governor, and I think especially for you, Danny, you have very strong support there. Do you have a sense of anybody who, of your colleagues who have Republican governors, and how much does that complicate their lives? Tom Miller finds himself in this situation. Tom Miller, absolutely. That's true. The legendary Tom Miller. Yeah. All right. They have different lines they have to walk. I can't speak exactly for what our, our law says, but I know he has to check in with his governor on occasion relative to signing on lawsuits and letters and things of that sort. So certainly there is a different calculus that he has to undertake, uh, as what I would imagine other attorneys general. You know what? Actually, Maryland has a comparable circumstance where Brian Frosch has a Republican governor. So again, I can't speak specifically to them, but certainly they have a different calculus, I would imagine, than those of us who have Democratic governors. Well, I think the point, Harry, is worth underscoring. There's a range of scenarios where the attorney general is more isolated or part of a team. So Tom Miller is at one extreme. His legislature and his governor are led by Republicans who are anti-choice, and they've curtailed the authority of the attorney general. In Colorado, I've got a general assembly. Both houses are filled with pro-choice Democrats, a governor who's pro-choice, and then you've got folks in the middle. I believe Dana has a state legislature that is, as she mentioned, because of gerrymandering, majority Republican or anti-choice. And, right. and that raises a range of these challenges. And her governor, as you said, is a strong supporter. The critical question that's going to fall out is, will the public make this a voting issue? And how will that impact our politics? Up until now, many Republicans played, you might call a two-step. They told their base, we're committed to overturning Roe versus Wade. We're committed to outlawing abortion. But then they told swing voters, oh, don't worry. There's nothing to see here. Roe versus Wade is settled law. That happened actually in my last campaign. That was exactly the two-step that my opponent tried to get away with. Republicans can't play that game anymore. Now they're the dog that caught the car, right? We have to have a more honest discussion now. And these elections are going to matter and they're going to determine whether or not we protect reproductive rights. And Dana adverted to, it's not just reproductive rights even, it's access to birth control, it's in vitro fertilization and marriage equality, all of which right now are at the fore and attorneys general are going to be critically involved in either the protection of these rights or the undermining of these rights. You make a really good point because there are 
interesting, difficult, challenging questions of democratic theory and your role. But in almost all these cases, what Dana said about the voters having settled things is likely going to be true around the country because even gubernatorial elections could well turn on the abortion issue. And so the state officials will be pointing to a mandate of one sort or another. Phil, I want to return to your answer that you gave out of the box with, you know, great resolve and determination, but will it fly? So here's the question, what's going to happen? And it's going to happen when a state tries to sanction, maybe criminalize someone who comes to Colorado, Nevada, or Michigan to get an abortion, but travels from a state where it's illegal and their local laws have asserted under many different theories, you know, that they can reach out and regulate that. Do you see that brewing on the horizon? You say, you know, over my dead body, but how really do you see this working and are you geared up for it legally? Yeah, we're going to see a range of cases. The amount of litigation that's going to happen because of legal uncertainty is multifold issues that we're only continuing to sort of uncover. This is an obvious one. Now, Justice Brett Kavanaugh has already revealed his hand on this issue. In his concurring statement, he said interstate right to travel protects the right to travel. That's a well-established right. Look, I'm sorry, it's a well-established right, but whether it covers an interest that is now as lightweight as any in the Constitution, no difference from do you prefer chocolate or vanilla ice cream, that is not clear under right to travel doctrine. I think that's a blithe assurance from Justice Kavanaugh. Well, a couple things. You don't know until the case comes, but he clearly decided to put his views out there already, knowing this case is coming. I will say this, Harry, if you do say, oh, you don't have an interstate right to travel to get an abortion, I'll let Aaron talk about what happens in Nevada. Uh, there are people who go to Nevada, not just gambling, but prostitution is legal there. Divorces. Divorce. Who knows what has happened in Vegas? It's supposed to stay in Vegas. It's perfect. All right. Do I have the law right? You can't just come t- tomorrow to Nevada and get the divorce. You have to establish residency there, no? I can't give you the answer to that, frankly. I don't know the divorce law. Um, uh, okay. So All right. Speaking that point. But I can say this. You don't have to be a resident to come and partake in other things that are e- illegal in other states. Prostitution for example, Uh, Uh marijuana, for example. Has anyone ever tried to give their long arm from another state for people who have done those things? Not to my knowledge. Certain hasn't written to the level of the attorney general's office for defense or prosecution or anything of that sort. So we are obviously keenly aware of of the concern in this regard. And we have bordering states all around us, except with the exception of, you know, obviously California. Actually, we we border Oregon a little bit as well. But, you know, from Idaho to Utah to Arizona, where we contemplate seeing an influx and actually have already seen an influx since the bounty law went into effect in Texas with the drain on our services here. Now, to be sure, we're going to be like Phil has indicated, and that's not turn away those who are coming to seek this, this form of care. Our governor has issued an executive order that will last as long as he's governor, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the legislature is going to have to act on this and pass some legislation to protect doctors, for example, who perform abortion care and to stop extraditions and things of that sort. So we're gearing up and preparing. So you have like a blueprint and a game plan. Law enforcement knows, okay, a woman comes across state lines, wants an abortion. You're educating local officials what they need to do, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And that communication has been ongoing since, again, since the draft opinion leaked. And 
there are, have been continual conversations ongoing about ways in which we're going to protect what was up until three weeks ago, a month ago, a constitutional right that's been protected for 50 years. Yeah. And if I can speak to that, first of all, the governor has already put out an executive directive on this. And the governor is the one who has the authority to extradite people to other states. She already said, absolutely not. She is not going to do this as it pertains to anyone who might be charged or even a witness, theoretically, who didn't cooperate with an investigation and they tried to extradite them to another state. She would not allow that to happen. But let's also look at this from a practicality standpoint. Let's say we have people from Ohio coming to Michigan, which we do right now in droves, seeking abortion care in Michigan. Dave Yost, the AG in Ohio, has made it very, very clear that he will vigorously enforce the anti-abortion laws in his state. But honestly, if you are trying to do an investigation for a quote-unquote crime that occurred in Michigan, you really need the cooperation of Michigan authorities to do that. How are you going to execute a search warrant in Michigan for, say, physicians' records without the cooperation of the Michigan AG? It's going to be really hard to do that. And I can tell you firsthand, having tried to work with other states, when I've had cases that involve Texas, and Ken Paxton's office has refused to cooperate with us, it's been very, very difficult. And we've done that on issues that really should be not very controversial, but they won't work with us. So if my department is not going to work with AGs in other states or prosecutors in other states that are trying to criminalize this, to travel to another state to seek an abortion, I think it's going to make that very difficult. I want to go back to something you talked about earlier, though, about establishing residency and why it matters. You do have to establish residency in order to get a divorce in any state. And why that matters is because if Obergefell is overturned and there are some states where same-sex marriage is legal and other states where it's not, a person might be able to go to another state to get married, but they won't be able to get divorced if they live in a state where same-sex marriage is not recognized. And we had that problem prior to Obergefell, and that's why full faith and credit, the recognition of out-of-state marriages was a critical part of the Obergefell case. So that matters very much, but it really has to do with whether it's abortion, whether it's same-sex marriage, whether it's many other issues, having this weird patchwork of in this state, you have this right, in this other state, you don't have a right. That's why it was so important to have the protection of the federal courts in the first place when it comes to these crucial seminal cases and rights it's just going to be a mess nationally when you do have this patchwork of fundamental rights in some states and no rights in other states. It's very problematic, not just for our individual states, but honestly for our country as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I would argue it's more than a patchwork in the sense patchwork implies different solutions in different places. But this country is roiled, and it's much more akin to a civil war. What you've just said, first, it's a great point. When I was a lead prosecutor, there were local counties that made clear that, you know, come ahead, but we're not going to give you any help. You really had a hard decision on your hands whether you were going to try to reinvent the wheel. But the actual prospect that Paxson calls up Nestle's office and like, oh, sorry, you know, those records are not available to you. That bespeaks a historic moment that is very, very rare in the country. So maybe to state the obvious, it's got to be what you see as a really, really, really important set of rights and interests on the line. 
It is, and let me state what that was about because it's really important. The Boy Scouts of America, the you know widespread child sexual abuse cases, the bankruptcy took place in Texas. So where else are you going to go to get all of those records so that I know how many of those offenses were committed in my state and what are the circumstances about those crimes that occurred in my state so that I can protect my state residents. So to have the Texas AG say, sorry, we're not going to help you get those records, really detrimental. And we're in this place now where you have a number of AGs that are withdrawing entirely from the National Associations of Attorney General. And it's creating a real problem. Actually, let me move to that because it doesn't take too much foresight or an ability to see around the corner to see that some of these issues, and I think marriage equality is probably front and center, are going to be coming to the court. So what if anything, are you doing now to actually anticipate and plan for other thunderbolts from the Supreme Court of the United States? Well, unfortunately, in Michigan, we have both a statute that makes same-sex marriage illegal in Michigan and also a constitutional amendment, which was passed in 2004, along with dozens of other states, that passed a similar constitutional amendment, which was part of George W. Bush and Carl Rove's plan to get Republicans excited to come out to vote that year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I worked very hard on the Michigan case and then also on the Obergefell case where the Sixth Circuit cases were consolidated to ensure that we had a United States Supreme Court decision making bans, such as the one in Michigan, uh, on same-sex marriage unconstitutional. And obviously we're looking at the very real possibility that Obergefell will be overturned in the coming years. And what I've been saying to my state is, I mean, we only have one choice. The only way to repeal a constitutional amendment is by a ballot proposal. The legislature can't do it. Two-thirds vote by the legislature can put it on the ballot. But one way or the other, the voters have to vote on that. So I've been encouraging everybody, let's start putting together a proposal for 2024, because we know Over 70% of people in my state would like to see same-sex marriage stay a legal right, and that includes over 50% of Republicans as well. And now that we've had marriage equality in every state since late June of 2015, people have seen that, of course, this is not damaging to our country, and in fact, it just creates stronger families. And the vast majority of of Americans want same-sex marriage to remain legal not just nationally, but of course, in their individual states as well. So if we're not going to have Congress do what they're trying to do today, which is to pass a federal statute ensuring that same-sex marriage remains legal all across the country, and I think most of us see that it'll pass in the House again, it won't pass in the Senate, and so nothing will ultimately happen, we really have to make sure we have the right people in Congress Because it's great to be able to do this state by state, but as I alluded to before, it's not going to work with marriage. If there's no full faith and recognition, you're driving through the states. In one state, you're married. The next state, you're not married. The next state, you're married. The next state, you're not married. And it it does impact the right to travel because people can't freely move from state to state because all of a sudden their marriage has been dissolved once they cross state lines. So we really need to have Congress act on this and not just have better legislatures where we can, in our own state, do something about it, we we really have to make sure that, that Congress acts as well. 
All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we hop into the beer cooler to ask the question, to IPA or not IPA? The India Pale Ale has become synonymous with the word hoppy. And it's that hoppiness that's created a bittersweet relationship with IPAs that has divided beer lovers across the world into two categories. Those who love this style of the pale ale for its full-flavored bite with flavors of lemon and pine needle, plus typically higher alcohol content. And then those who prefer a little less sharpness with each sip. So what gives IPAs that signature bite? Well, there's another abbreviation you should know, IBU which stands for International Bitterness Units. The higher the IBU, the more bitter the beer. Luckily, at Total Wine & More, we carry an array of IPAs that offer up a huge range of happiness. We've all been bitten by a hoppy IPA in our past. Swing by your local Total Wine & More and let our guides find you an IPA that's more Y-O-U. So find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right. So, Aaron and Phil, are you doing anything within your office to prepare for this day? And actually, less likely but not inconceivable attacks on, for example, Lawrence versus Texas or even Griswold, you know, other rights that some red states, I would say, still feel, you know, a stick in their craw about. Well, Ted Cruz just said the other day he thinks that Oberfeld should be overturned. And Colorado, like Michigan, has a state constitutional provision that says marriage is only between a man and a woman. And the reason we have marriage equality in Colorado is because of the Oberfeld case. We need to organize in Colorado and pass a new state constitutional amendment. And I'd like to see it pass overwhelmingly, over 70%. Because I think what Dana said about Michigan is true in Colorado. It's overwhelmingly popular in Colorado in the nation. I believe the latest Gallup poll said 71% of Americans believe in marriage equality. One of the problematic elements of this Dobbs decision is how blind it was to practical impacts. And the impact of overturning Obergefell would be a disaster, just like Dobbs itself is a disaster. Will this Supreme Court take heed of the practical impact of their decision? They didn't in Dobbs. Again, uh, I think Justice Brett Kavanaugh suggests that marriage equality is not on the table, but I, I have to say Thomas's argument from the method of the case is persuasive. If you believe in the principles underlying Dobbs, I'm not sure how they don't overrule Griswold, Lawrence, and Oberfeld. And I don't believe the American people are going to stand for it, which is to Dana's point, we've got to elect new people who will protect our rights. All right. So both of you are identifying elect new people, et cetera. You've made an abstract argument for a possible ballot initiative. I just want to follow up and let me start with you, Aaron, on what you're doing, if anything, as I said, you've got your hands full, but what are you doing now in anticipation of it? Yeah, well, far from abstract here in Nevada, we've already been underway to codify uh, marriage equality in our state. Now, similar to what happened in Colorado was the constitutional amendment that defined marriage as between a man and a woman. It happened in Nevada as well. But we undid that. 
it happened in the, in the early 2000s. And when I was my, my first session in the legislature in 2013, started the process to vote to have that removed from our constitution. And it was removed from our constitution. And now we're in the process, in the middle of the process, where the legislature is about to send to the people a ballot initiative that makes constitutionally protected the right to marriage equality. So we are well on, uh, on our way in that regard. And now my role is working with the people on the legislative side of these things, educating folks. Again, I go back to my word of complacency. Um, it's not just being complacent because we have Roe v. Wade codified. As we've talked about, you know, you have uh, other rights that are on the chopping block because of the Dobbs decision. And this is one of those. It's interesting because I, I recall my, he's a good friend of mine, Pete Buttigieg, when he ran for president. One of the speeches that he gave, it still resonates with me for this exact reason. He says, my marriage is based on one vote on the Supreme Court. And that resonates with me because, in fact, that's the case uh, in many states, but hopefully it won't be the case in Nevada because it will go to the people and we will uh, be able to constitutionally protect marriage equality here uh, in the state. Other than supporting electoral efforts, what role does or should an attorney general play in the constitutional initiative process or however it's called in the respective states? I'm now just thinking of Romer versus Evan. Well, yep, that's a dark chapter in Colorado. We were known as the hate state because we passed right. a constitutional ballot proposition that limited civil rights protections so that gays and lesbians couldn't get those protections even at the local level. And the Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional in what was actually before Lawrence versus Texas, Romer versus Evans. I think here's the point, and, and I know Dana lives this as well. We are not merely reactive after the fact someone sues. We are proactive, affirmatively defending our rights, using whatever tools are out there. So I am already working with the advocacy groups to develop the plan and the work ahead to get our state constitutional amendment the way that happened in Nevada. We got to do that in Colorado. That's critical. We will also be very active in litigation to defend marriage equality. One of the things about the Dobbs case that was disappointing is the equal protection issues really didn't get the due they deserved. Those issues will be undeniable when marriage equality, and for that matter, interracial marriage is going to be another issue. The originalism argument that was made in Dobbs is something that I find indefensible. When you had the 14th Amendment adopted, interracial marriage was not a norm. In fact, even integrated schools was not a norm. So if you say the Equal Protection Clause only means what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought, we're not only overruling Oberfeld, we're overruling Loving versus Virginia too. So we'll be actively in the legal battle, in the courts, in the court of public opinion, and to change our state constitution to make sure it does stand for equality and justice. By the way, I would argue that Brown v. Board should be in the mix, too, if we're talking about that. You know, if we're looking at especially due process considerations of the 14th Amendment, I know we're talking about right to privacy cases, but if you're looking at some of the language that was used in the Dobbs decision, I think it'd be hard to argue that that doesn't apply to Brown v. Board as well and a, a litany of other cases. Talk about a line in the sand. All right, just one quick question. I just want to get your sense. You're out and about with people, and you know, you're know you hearing a lot of passionate response, at least based on the snapshot of your states. Are people up in arms fighting each other? Are the kinds of snapshots we see at different places in the country also in Michigan, Nevada, and Colorado? Does it seem like a time of great social discord and polarization? I just want your sense of how it feels on the ground. People are scared on the ground. Rights that had been settled 
a era of back alley abortions that people thought was relegated to history and other rights like birth control, marriage equality are also unsettled. So the overwhelming feeling that I am seeing is people are feeling scared. People are more frustrated and distrusting in our Supreme Court and institutions because of this decision. And I think for the body politic more broadly, this decision undermines the general confidence in the rule of law and norms about how our legal system works. Remember, Roberts wrote a, still not sure if you call it a dissent or concurrence, but what his statement said is, we don't need to be doing this. We shouldn't be doing this. This issue is really not before the court. And this court decided to go out and reach for it and to undermine a settled right in a very aggressive way. And that's something that left a lot of people with a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah, I mean, they're frightened here as well, but they're also mad. And they also are taking our advice not to be led into a sense of complacency. We see people in the streets, they're still marching, and they are still talking about ensuring that we, we do elect folks into office. Look, this court talked about the states being able to make the decisions. A lot of the Republicans are talking about the states should be able to make the decisions, yet they're hearing the same Republicans talking about a nationwide ban on abortion. And they recognize yet again that that is another opportunity for people to undermine this right that we have in our statutes here in, in the state. And so they are fired up. Uh, we've seen an increase in activity and where some folks were concerned about turnout. Uh, frankly, on the Democratic side, they are less concerned about the turnout because of this important issue. And again, it doesn't stop uh, at abortion care, although that is the key that galvanizes everyone. People are recognizing the attacks that are on the horizon, uh, some of which have been you know, simmering for a while now. Yeah, I would say in Michigan, here's the difference to me between abortion uh, and what just happened with Dobbs and some of the other really concerning areas where it seems like we may be in some significant trouble. If you look at things like climate change, hugely important. If you look at, of course, democracy as a whole and the erosion of the concept that everyone who's eligible has the right to vote and their vote will be counted. These are things that, to some extent, I, I guess I would use the analogy of, you know, a boiled frog, right? Frog doesn't know that it's being boiled to death until it's too late. But with Dobbs, what made this so different is that all of a sudden, one day you had a constitutional right, and the next day you didn't. It was that abrupt. It wasn't something that sort of slowly happened over time, or it didn't even happen over the course of several months or years. It was the change one day to the next. And I think that, even though people should have known that that was coming, not just because the court took those cases in the first place, but because of the leaked draft opinion, but still, it sent shockwaves throughout our state. And I think for a lot of people that were feeling very disillusioned and, frankly, overwhelmed with disinformation and upset because we're having some economic problems all over the country that involve sometimes global affairs, I think all of a sudden people woke up a little bit the day that Dobbs came down. And I do think people are more engaged than they were prior to that. And I do think we're going to have a very high turnout in our election this year. Thank you very much to Dana, Aaron, and Phil. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. 
We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. We've recently posted there a conversation with Adam Liptak of the New York Times about the right to travel in a post-Roe versus Wade world. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com contact. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. That's TalkingFeds.com slash contact. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Macias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Laura Felbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.